The following KOPN podcast is made possible by the generous donations from listeners like you. Please consider a donation to listener-supported community radio, KOPN. You can donate securely online at kopn.org. Thank you. Hi, welcome to Food Sleuth Radio, where we help you think beyond your plate. I'm Melinda Hemmelgarn, a registered dietitian and investigative nutritionist on a mission to connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture and find food truth. And today I'm honored to welcome my guest, Ms. Amy Tameo. She is the National Policy and Advisory Director at Alianza Nacional de Campesinas, where she advocates alongside farm worker women in advancing their priorities in the areas of immigration environmental justice, workers' rights, and ending violence against women. Amy is the daughter of immigrant parents from Mexico, and she is proud to be advocating for Campesinex communities. She received her JD from the American University Washington College of Law and participated in the Immigrant Justice Legal Clinic. Welcome, Amy. Thank you, Melinda. Nice to be here. Well, I am delighted to have you, especially as we consider Labor Day and all of the issues surrounding labor justice and injustice. And I think that farmers are getting more of the recognition that they deserve, but not enough recognition goes to farm workers who truly toil in the fields with increasing difficulty due to climate change. And I want you to help us understand what it's like to be a woman in particular working in agriculture and what we should all be aware of when we go to the grocery store and we see the food that's been harvested by these hands. So first tell me, how did you become interested in farmworker justice issues? I became interested in farmworker advocacy and policy at a pretty young age. My parents grew up on farms in Mexico and my dad was a farmer himself before he and my mother moved to the U.S. And my grandparents and several of my uncles, aunts and cousins are still small farmers or even farm workers. And like most children of immigrants, I think I became an advocate before I knew what the word meant. Out of necessity, a lot of us have to learn to interpret, translate, and advocate for our parents. And as I got older, I realized I wanted to learn more skills and I wanted all the necessary information that I think could have really helped my family or even changed the course of our experience in this country. And so their roots and experiences is what exposed me to systems that I now want to help change and reform. Tell me what life was like for your parents as Mexican immigrants. My parents first moved to Los Angeles where they had some family ties in the area. And it was extremely difficult to be in a community where the living costs were extremely high. Public education was not necessarily the best that my parents wanted for us. So my family moved to Idaho when I was four years old. It was a really different change moving from a big city to a pretty rural small town where we were probably one of the first families that was not white living in this area. And when I started school, for example, there weren't bilingual teachers. There weren't folks who could help students learn English. They didn't have ESL program developed yet. I had to take classes with children with learning disabilities or other 
neurological conditions because there wasn't the program set up. Fast forward to now, there are a lot more Mexican immigrants in this area, and they have invested in these resources for folks. But when we were one of those first families, it was challenging finding housing, finding work for us to adjust in the education system was really hard on us. And I think seeing all these hardships, seeing my parents having to travel two or three hours just to find someone to translate a letter for them to use in their immigration proceedings is when I realized that there just isn't enough people that are dedicating themselves to helping immigrant communities. Right. Okay. So I'm curious to know about the kinds of farming that your parents did. Well, my parents grew up on farms in Mexico and in the part of Mexico that they grew up on, they harvested corn, beans, peanuts, watermelons, cucumbers, and the family on my mom's side are still ranchers. So they have cattle, but they also do some agriculture that's produce. But part of the reason they came to the U.S. was because they wanted to get jobs and save money to be able to go home and invest in better farming equipment to help their families' farms. That ended up not really being what happened. And so their plans didn't go as they had wanted, but I think they stayed in the U.S. because they saw that there were more opportunities here than there was for them to be farmers in Mexico. So as your parents were working in the United States, did they have to travel or did they mostly stay in one community? My parents did not work as farm workers in the United States. We moved to an area in Idaho that is surprisingly one of the few places that is not agriculture specific. The industry where we moved to is more tourism related. And so my parents worked in different types of low-wage jobs, construction, housekeeping, working in cleaning services for different schools and hospitals. But I do have family members that are farm workers in Central California and live year-round in the same place. And they live close to the fields an hour away from Fresno. I see. I'm sure they missed their profession that they had in Mexico. That must have been a challenge for them. Oh, absolutely. I think it was my dad's dream to be able to go home and invest in the family farm and make it financially stable and make it successful, but it didn't work out for them. And my family members that are still farmers in Mexico, they have really challenging conditions that they work in. Every year, the weather is different. It's hard to compete in the market where they are. And there's a lot of poverty for families that have to survive off of their small farms in these rural parts of Mexico. When I was doing research in preparation for our interview, I looked specifically at farm working occupations where individuals were really challenged by what appeared to be three major issues in addition to immigration status. And that's a whole separate category specifically farm work, there was heat, there was pesticide exposure, and then there was also violence. Those were the three issues that popped out to me. And then the difference between how women versus men experience those conditions where women are more vulnerable, and then children, of course, are more vulnerable, and they are able to work at, I believe it's 12 years of age in farm work. Is that correct? That is correct. That is the legal age. But we know that children as young as nine are being hired to work on farms in the agriculture industry. Wow. And 
what kind of protections are there for children? I think children work as farm workers out of necessity to help support their families. And even if there are some protections, and it sometimes depends on the state that you're in, some states have better protections. And there are now some protections that children under a certain age cannot be, for example, pesticide handlers, like an adult worker. But there are different vulnerabilities that make children at risk for like labor trafficking or wage theft, sexual assault and violence. Children are less likely to exercise their rights out of fear for retaliation, not just of themselves, but also of their parents, because oftentimes children are working at the same place or on the same farms that their parents are also working at. Well, I'm concerned about, of course, pesticide exposure because we don't really fully understand all of the negative impacts that pesticides have. Or maybe we think that pesticides only affect target organisms when really they affect our biological systems as well. So for children, of course, they're more vulnerable because their systems are not fully developed and their exposure is greater regarding their body surface area. But then there's also women who become pregnant and who are breastfeeding. And that exposure can affect the health and well-being of their children. So tell me about those kinds of situations and if you work on those at all. Yes, definitely. So at Alianza, we focus our advocacy in four main priority areas. And one of them is pesticide justice. And we, as a women's organization, do a lot of work on trying to advocate and lift up the stories of what farm worker women are experiencing. And part of the reason that we really use the storytelling as a key part of our advocacy is because we want women's voices to be leading what the recommendations that we're making to agencies like the EPA or to policymakers in Congress. Because one of the things that is missing is that there is not enough research being done on the effects of pesticides on women. And so there's not a lot of data. And right now, we're having to collect stories from people who are experiencing pesticide exposure, pesticide poisoning firsthand, and transmitting those stories and converting them into policy recommendations. And some of the biggest issues that we see is that women feel at risk for pesticide exposure, even when they're not working with pesticides directly. And what I mean by that is a lot of farm worker women are not actually the pesticide handler, like they're not the person spraying the pesticide, they're not the person dusting the pesticide on the crops, but they are doing the jobs that require them to be on the farms or in the fields around the same time that that is being done. And so the slightest breeze will carry over pesticide drift and it causes skin allergies. It irritates their eyes. They report having long-term headaches and migraines from breathing this air, even if they're wearing a mask. And if they are wearing a mask, it's likely because they purchased it themselves. Those are not provided by an employer. And then we see these more long-term effects like skin allergies, a lot of respiratory issues. A lot more people are reporting that they have asthma. A lot of older farm workers who've been working for decades have serious respiratory issues. And some of them develop different types of lung cancers or other types of cancers that are directly related to the respiratory system. And like you mentioned, women have this additional challenge of 
having to possibly face reproductive health conditions that can affect not just their reproductive system. And like we see a lot of ovarian and uterine cancer, but also it affects their unborn children. It affects their children as they get older. And some of the big ones that we're seeing more is that there's a high number of children with different types of autism, vision and hearing impairments. And some children are actually already born with a type of skin allergy, even though they may have not had contact with pesticides. And so there's a big range of what the health issue can be related to pesticides, but it's really hard for that responsibility to be on the workers themselves, you know, like they do their best to protect themselves. They go home, they take off their clothes, they wash them. They try to evacuate their homes if they know certain things are being sprayed and take their children to a hotel for a night or two, which can be incredibly expensive for a family. But as long as the pesticides are being used within close proximity of the housing or of where they're working, of where they eat lunch, of where their children's schools and daycares are, it's very present in like every aspect of their life. And so the responsibility should not be on them to protect themselves from it, but it should be that regulation should be stricter and there should be more responsibility by the employer to protect their workers. Absolutely. There is so much injustice. And it's one of the reasons why I recommend that people purchase and support organic food and farming, not only because it's safer for the end eater, but it also protects the farm worker community. So everything is connected, and I'm really glad you're bringing these issues forward. Amy, I want to take one break and remind our listeners that if you're just joining us, you're tuned into Food Sleuth Radio, and today we are speaking with Ms. Amy Tamayo. She is the National Policy and Advocacy Director at Alianza Nacional de Campesinas Incorporated, where she advocates alongside farmworker women in advancing their priorities in the areas of immigration, environmental justice, workers' rights, and ending violence against women. And she holds a law degree from the American University Washington College of Law in Washington, D.C. Amy, I want to talk about protection. Are there some states that require or mandate protection for the population of farm workers in those states, or is it always up to the farm worker to ultimately protect themselves? A combination of both. There are some states that have better and more comprehensive protections for workers, California being one of them. Oregon and Washington also have better protections for their farm workers. But even when there's protections in state agency level or state legislation level, the problem with pesticides is you can be using a pesticide correctly. You can be using it according to EPA regulations, according to these better state regulations, but there's always such a high risk of misusing the pesticide. And that is such a pervasive issue. And part of that is because the way the products are being used creates so much harm. Right now, EPA does not require the labels on pesticides to be bilingual, for example. And so if someone doesn't read English or isn't able to understand English, they're not going to be able to read what is even on the label. And that's assuming that someone is able to see the product. Usually employers take the product out of the containers into these other vessels that then gets used by workers to spray. And by the time they get the product, they don't know what they're using. And because there's no requirements for employers to give workers trainings on how to use these products or what the risks are, there's like this cycle of 
products being used incorrectly because there's no proper training. And if there is, it's not in Spanish or it's not in the language that the workers speak. So I think even, you know, states like California that have some of the better protections for workers, workers are still reporting some of the most pesticide exposure because there's so many gaps. There's so much missing in these regulations. Right. It just seems so unfair that a group of people who are so essential to our having food on our plates would be treated with such disregard. And it's why I thought your voice would be so important for us today. You mentioned storytelling, and I think it is important to meet the people who are living lives in agricultural communities. And what sparked my interest actually in your organization was a story that came through, I believe it was part of a press release. It was through the Women, Food and Agriculture Network. And it was a story of Elizabeth Hamey. And she immigrated to California from Mexico over 20 years ago. She's worked in the fields ever since. And she provides a testament to the harsh realities faced by agriculture workers throughout the entire country. Would you want to share a little bit of her story with us so that we can understand what she in particular is facing? Yes, of course. And thank you for bringing up Elizabeth Jaime's story. She is a farm worker and organizer in Southern California. And she's worked in different types of farms and different types of jobs in the food and agriculture system, whether it's harvesting fruits and vegetables or packing them in a packing house. And so she has seen a wide array of how farm workers are exposed to different risks in the workplace. And some of them being because there are rising temperatures because of climate change. Some of it can be because of the pesticide exposure. And some of it is because there's just not enough protection for workers. And something that I think is really important about Elizabeth's testimony is that one thing that she thinks needs to change in order for workers' rights, immigrant justice, and environmental justice to put farm workers first is that the way we think about farm workers needs to completely change. The narrative needs to be completely changed because farm workers are often seen as low-skilled, low-wage workers, and their issues remain invisible to so many people because they're not recognized. And that really perpetuates the thinking that their issues are not valuable and their lives are not valuable. And that makes it so much easier for people to accept their poor treatment when you, there's not a face to these issues, when their issues are not at the table with policymakers and with agency representatives. So I think that's really core to so much of what's going on with farm workers in this country is that they're disregarded, they're not recognized, and they're not respected. And a lot of the things that they're subjected to is inhumane, but I think it's so normalized and it's not talked about because people have just accepted that that is the way farm work is in this country, but it, it shouldn't be that way. And so I'm really glad that Elizabeth Jaime was able to share that. And I think her story is really powerful, but unfortunately, it's very common. Most people that are farm workers and a lot of women can re probably read her story and say, that is what I go through every day. And that is what my family goes through every day. Well, I will provide a link to Elizabeth's story. And I think we've all seen those bumper stickers that say, no farmers, no food. But I think we need to go a step farther and say, no farm workers, no food, because ultimately it's this larger group of people who are truly doing the labor on these large fields. Now, you have a good understanding of the law and 
what policies need to change. And in Elizabeth's statement, she identifies certain acts. So, for example, the 2023 Protect America's Children from Toxic Pesticides Act that was introduced by Senator Cory Booker. How can we support that? Yeah, so there is some legislation in Congress right now that is uplifting some of these concerns that farm worker women have. One being protecting children from pesticide exposure, identifying the risks of pesticides. And we're hoping that pieces of that will end up in this upcoming Farm Bill, which is a huge piece of legislation that's reauthorized every five years. And it's up for reauthorization in the end of this year going into 2024. And there is other legislation that was recently introduced by Senator Padilla. And it also is pretty specific to some of the things that the USDA can change to give farm worker issues more attention. One of those being allowing farm workers to be a part of the process of who is representing them at the USDA, as well as other agencies. The other is giving more resources to outreach and research efforts on farm worker issues so that there can be adequate research on how heat is affecting children, how heat is affecting farm worker women, as well as pesticides, so that when there are policy changes being made or recommendations being made, we have the data necessary to back up what we're asking for. And Senator Padilla's two bills that were introduced, one is called Supporting Our Farm and Food System Workforce. There is some language there that would create some positive changes in the USDA and creating a committee. And in this committee, there would be different representatives from nonprofits, folks that are have expertise in farm worker women issues specifically, and nonprofits and community-based organizations would have the opportunity to nominate people to these committees. And so I think these types of changes would be a great way to be able to elevate some of the concerns that you can see in Elizabeth Hyman's testimony. Right. I really appreciate your mentioning heat because I've recently learned that heat is a great amplifier of other negative situations. So for example, being exposed to pesticides is horrific because they are oftentimes damaging to our brains as well as the other systems that you mentioned. But the heat plus the pesticides amplifies the negative effects. Are we seeing increased policies protecting farm workers because of the climate changes that we're witnessing? Unfortunately, no. There is still no national heat stress standard. The Department of Labor has not pushed OSHA to establish a national heat stress standard. There is a current piece of legislation in Congress to establish a national heat stress standard. It was also introduced by Senator Padilla recently, and it had been introduced previously by Representative Julie Chu from California. And this piece of legislation would establish a lot of the things that workers have been asking for even before climate change was creating such dangerous high temperatures. But some of the things that we know are necessary is that workers need to be informed of the effects of heat stress, heat stroke, and even death related to heat exposure. And there isn't a requirement for workers to be trained on these risks. And when you think of migrant workers that come to the U.S. on H-2A visas who may be coming from a completely different environment, they need times for their bodies to acclimate to these high temperatures and they're not given that. And sometimes they're not given a training to be told, 
these are the warning signs you should watch out for that you may need to sit down in the shade. And when workers are working, they might not notice that their internal temperature is high. They might not notice that their bodies aren't cooling off until it's pretty late. They might already be having heat stroke. And a lot of the women that we meet say there aren't shaded areas close enough to where we work. The closest shaded area is pretty far away. And for us to walk over there to cool off and then walk back, we might be exerting more energy and getting even hotter, or we're losing time that we could be making money because these breaks are not paid. And if you're being paid by piece rate, like the weight of what you're cultivating, that time is money that you could be losing an hour of your wages that day. And so there needs to be shaded areas in close proximity to where people are working. There have to be paid breaks for people to cool down. Employers need to provide cold water for people or a station where people can keep their own water bottles cool. And those are like basic things that they provide. A lot of ranches provide this for their animals, but they don't provide it for their workers that are humans. And that is so hard to see every year, the risk of heat stress getting worse and worse. And people still don't want to talk about it because people don't want to talk about climate change. They don't want to talk about environmental issues. But without, like you said, without workers, we don't have food. And so at some point, I don't know how much time we're going to waste ignoring this, you know, until people cannot physically be outside without dying. And it is extremely frustrating for this issue to still be ongoing. I recently heard that there were several farm workers who died in Kern County, California from the heat. And we hear marginally about these stories. I wish they were front page stories so that more of us were aware of the need to make policy changes. We are closing in on the end of our time, Amy, but is there anything that you would like for us to know about the work of Alianza and how we can all join your efforts? Yes, thank you for asking. Alianza Nacional de Campesinas is a national organization. We're made up of different member organizations across 20 different states. And so we elevate the issues and the voices of farm worker women across different industries in the agriculture system and different regions with different issues. And we share a lot of this work on our social media. And it would be great for folks to educate themselves on these issues, either using our materials or other materials that we know are out there by other organizations doing good work, like Farm Worker Justice. And you can support by engaging with this content, educating yourself and where the food on your plate comes from and what goes into that. But also independent individuals can contact their representatives and senators and voice support for some of this legislation that Alianza is also supporting or endorsing or calling your representatives and senators and just voicing your concern. If you are living in an area where farm workers are dying because of the heat, that affects you. If you are a part of the supply chain in any way related to food, agriculture, which is everybody in this country, then these issues should matter to you. And so we really hope that folks will go to our pages, share it or read it, teach someone in their family something about it, and then take the next step and either donate or contact your representatives. That's great advice. And there are many more issues to discuss. We didn't touch on violence in the workplace for women. And that is a whole other issue to be explored. And we can find more of that information on your website. So in closing, I want to thank our listeners for joining us. 
Remind everyone that Food Sleuth Radio is produced by Dan Hamelgarn for KOPN in Columbia, Missouri. Most of all, I want to thank my guest, Ms. Amy Tomeo. She is the National Policy and Advocacy Director at Alianza Nacional de Campesinas, where she advocates alongside farmworker women in advancing their priorities in the areas of immigration, environmental justice, workers' rights, and ending violence against women. Thank you so much for your time and for your work. Thank you so much for the attention and the space to share, Melinda. I really appreciate it.